Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. I came across, and, and please don't, don't take this as weird or morbid or anything else. I came across this obituary that was written for this lady that died back in May, just about the time that we were pretty sure we knew who the two candidates would be. Now, she had had a long battle with cancer, and her family described her as being feisty to the end. And so when they wrote the obituary, they did it with a little bit of a sense of humor, not a political statement. So here is the opening of Marianne Nolan's obituary. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Marianne Nolan of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May 15th, 2016, at the age of 68. That's real, that is a real obituary. She was a believer, and uh, some of us are kind of jealous. Because it's been nonstop, hasn't it? I'm sure you didn't want to come to church and hear about it either. But so many things, when you hear the pundits or the strategists or the analysis that takes place, they mention all these different factions, swing states and minorities and college-educated this and that. And over and over again, I've heard about the evangelical voter. Anybody heard about the evangelical voter? And the truth is, um, that would be us, right, as, as, with regards to theology or practice. Calvary would be considered part of that big picture of an evangelical church. The reality is, though, that when you hear people saying this, I don't know that they always know what they're talking about. See, they use it in so many different ways, and sometimes I go, well, I'm not sure that's me. I'm not sure that's Calvary. Here's what's probably good for us to know. More than evangelicals, at Calvary, we consider ourselves followers of Christ. The term that we use is Christians. And for all the ways in which that term is used, it's probably important for us to understand it. Take your Bibles with me, if you would please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're in a series of messages where we're walking through the book of 1 Peter. We've gone through chapters 1 and 2. Next week, we're really going to dig into chapter 3. This week, I want to take two verses out of chapter 2, two verses out of chapter 3, and use those to help us to understand something that I think is really important. Peter wrote this book to a group of people, and, and multiple times, he'll do it again in the passage we'll look at today, he refers to them as exiles, He's saying, look, you live in a place that's not your home. You're far from home. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so that's why we call this series of messages Exiled. And he's writing to a group of people who were living in uncertain times. This is maybe 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is brand new in its spread across the Roman Empire. Peter has probably never met these people, but they certainly know about him and he's heard about them. And because he has the heart of a leader and a pastor, he is writing to these people that he refers to, as you'll see in a moment, he refers to them as his dear friends. He's writing to them and he's saying to them, look, I care about how you live in these uncertain times. See, their faith has cost them something. It meant that they were different from the world around them. They had left the practices and priorities of their life before they were believers, and it's affected them now. It's affected them financially, it's affected them relationally, it's affected them socially, that when they chose to live according to God's word and by his truths, now they were different from the world around them. Persecution was beginning to spread throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, within five years of the writing of this letter, it will have reached a point of such heated persecution that the emperor himself will be blaming Christianity for the problems in the empire. 
And it's in the midst of these uncertain times that Peter writes to this church because he wants them to know something. And the theme that we've seen throughout this message series, and you'll see as you read throughout the book, is this, that the faith we live out will separate us from the world we live in. It makes us different. It changes our priorities in our life. And these people were living in uncertain times. I would venture to guess that many of us feel as if we're living in uncertain times, don't you? The election this Tuesday, these are uncertain times. Cultural shifts with regards to identity and morality, they're uncertain times. Threats of terrorism, threats to religious liberty, these are uncertain times. The upcoming U of M OSU game, these are uncertain times. We, amen, brother. Come on. What does it mean to be a Christian in uncertain times? I want to look at two different passages of scripture, two verses in chapter one, two in chapter three, that are chapter two and chapter three that I think are gonna help us to see as Peter's writing. And remember, he's writing to a church that has never been here before. Christianity is only 30 years old. They don't know what it's like to live this out and he wants to help them know if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here's how you navigate times of uncertainty. First Peter chapter two, verse 11, here's what he says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And let's jump ahead, chapter three, verse 15. Peter visits some same themes. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. My tendency when there's uncertainty is for me to kind of hold back kind of not know what to do and maybe just be a little timid or even fearful. But that's not what you see in these verses. Here's what you see is that in uncertain times, Christians live with confidence and influence. In uncertain times, followers of Jesus Christ live with confidence and influence. So what I want to do is unpack these four verses that we've looked at today. I want to give you five ways Christians live in uncertain times. Five ways that Christians live in uncertain times. Let's jump in. Here's the first one. Number one, Christians have Christ at the center of their lives. In uncertain times, in every season, followers of Jesus, Christians have Christ at the center of their lives. And we're, we're gonna jump back and forth between chapter two and chapter three. And at the beginning of this passage in chapter three, verse 15, here's what Peter writes. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He's saying, look, at the very center of who you are, at the core of your being, in your heart, I want you to revere Christ as Lord. If you remember, when we started this series several weeks ago, we talked about the fact that in the Roman Empire in this day, it was expected that people would worship Caesar, that they would worship the emperor. They believed he wasn't human, but that he was a god. And they were called to worship what they referred to as the genius of the emperor. And so the saying was this, people would proclaim Caesar is Lord. So how countercultural is it that Peter says to people, in your hearts, 
at the very center of who you are, I want you to revere that Jesus is Lord. More important than any other person, more important than any other pressure, more important than any other thing in your life, you need to affirm that Jesus is Lord. And this helps us. What does it mean if Jesus is Lord? It means that that relationship is the thing that drives motivates and gives meaning, direction, and purpose to our lives. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I know that there's a possibility that some people are here today because you're supporting someone who's being baptized, a friend, family member, loved one, somebody that you're here and you wanna be here for their baptism. And maybe you have some questions about why they're doing this. Why are they choosing to be baptized? Why is this so important to them? And oftentimes, I think when we think of baptism, we think of it as just kind of this religious ritual or this act that you gotta check off in kind of this spiritual journey. But see, Christianity is so much more than that. It's not just ritual. It's not just what man regulates or rules that are there. Christianity is not the religion of man, but a relationship with God. It's a different thing. It's not about history, it's not about practice, it's not about liturgy, it's about me saying the most important thing in my life is the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he died on the cross for me. He gave his life for me. He's the source of value and purpose and hope in my life. I look to him. That's what it means. We, we talk about Jesus being our savior. The idea is that because of the price he paid on the cross, my sins can be forgiven. And we also talk about the fact that he's my Lord. What does that mean? Now, I know we've used this analogy before, but it's, it's for me the best way to illustrate what he's saying here. How do you revere Jesus Christ as Lord? The best picture I've seen is this, that he's in the driver's seat of your life. He's the one whose hands are on the steering wheel. And I'm content to be in the passenger seat and I may run my mouth from time to time, I might wanna help give direction, and I'm fully involved in this journey, but I realize that the one who's in control is Jesus Christ. His hands are on the steering wheel, and he's not a reckless driver. That's what it means to make him your Lord. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were doing analysis. It was a news podcast, and they were doing analysis of the election. And the host was talking about how worked up he was over this election. You can tell he's not a person of, uh, of deep faith. And, and his statement was, I am so troubled by this, I can't sleep at night. Literally. I mean, he wasn't just saying that. He was talking about how he could not sleep at night. And whenever he did fall asleep, he started having nightmares. This was his experience. And I think there's a lot of people who are experiencing this kind of angst and despair in this season. Look, in an election week, let me encourage you, who do you place your confidence in? Is it in the president or is it in your Lord? First Peter chapter three, verse 22, this is a few verses down from our text. Peter writes about Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He is in control. And this is what we mean. This is, the, this is why Peter starts here. He says, look, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Because when you center your heart on the lordship of Christ, it rightly guides your responses to the challenges of life. Now look, for some of you, your uncertain time has nothing to do with an election. It's a whole lot closer to home than that. You're facing uncertainty in a job or in your finances, in your health, in a relationship. Maybe you're just, you're, just, you're just restless and troubled in your spirit. If you're facing uncertain times, realize that peace 
And life start when you center your life on Jesus Christ. Because when he's at the center, then he guides all your responses from there. He, he, he's able to lead your life in that and you find confidence in that in your marriage and in your workplace and in your every area of your life. So it starts here. In uncertain times, Christians begin by having their hearts centered on Jesus Christ. Second thing that I want you to see, number two is this. In uncertain times, Christians make wise choices. Number two, Christians make wise choices. This is the language that Peter uses in in verse 11 of chapter two. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He uses some strong language here. He says, look, I urge you to do this. It's not a, a, a minor request. It's very forceful. I urge you to do this. Urge you to abstain. He means Make sure you're choosing things that are helpful and not destructive. And he refers to these things as things that wage war against your soul. He calls them sinful desires. It's those passions, those desires, those impulses, those wishes and wants that we have in our hearts that we've gotta realize they can be destructive. And we have to be careful because we're people who many times are driven by our feelings. Isn't that true? Think about the decisions we make sometimes. I bought it because it looked good. I said it because I wanted to. I did it because it felt right. Ever been there? And what Peter's saying here is our faith and not our feelings should set the course for our actions. It's what we believe. It's what we know to be true. It's what we've seen in God's word. That's what should guide our choices. Our faith, not our feelings. Not just what we feel in the moment. Why is this important? Because he says, look, you need to abstain from these things because these things literally wage war against your soul. If you're in a war, what's the purpose? For somebody to take you out, to destroy you, to end you. And these desires, if left to run their course, will actually bring destruction to your life. His point is that your choices will either bring you victory or defeat. Your choices are either gonna bring you victory or bring you defeat. Might not seem like that big of a deal today, but the way we live, the way we handle our passions and our desires, that will chart the course for our lives and they have ramifications. And when I was reading this, just to be honest, I was a little bit tempted because I'm sitting there when I'm reading this to go, boy, I'm glad I'm not making many choices. Got a family, got a job, I know where I live, I'm kinda, kinda in that place where I go, I'm happy, I'm content in this place, and you start to think those choices are just for the young. That's foolish, isn't it? I mean, we make choices all the time. Who are you around? What do you fill your mind with? What kind of attitude are you choosing to have? How do you steward the blessings God has given to you? How do you navigate the challenges that you face in life? Life is a series of choices, how you choose determines how you live. Life is a series of choices, and how you choose is gonna determine how you live. This is why Joshua said, famous passage, Joshua 24, 15, he said, choose this day who you will serve. It's up to you, you you gotta make the call. He says, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. What kind of choices do we make? The people we let in our lives, the things we pursue for pleasure, the purpose of our lives, our priorities in our days. And we choose a president this week. And so let me, just, let me just drop your way some questions to consider when making wise choices. 
Well, just two things I'd like for you to think about. Some questions to consider when making wise choices. And there's plenty of things we could think about here. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But I, I want to just drop two thoughts by you that I think really relate to how do we choose the things that we chase after, like Peter's talking about. And I think they relate to the decision that we make as a nation this week in looking for a president. And if, if I can, just, I, I, I want to, can I get on a soapbox for just a quick minute? I didn't bring a box, so I'm just going to get up on my chair. Is that okay? So can I do this for just a minute? Look, I want to encourage you, will you please, please go out and vote. I know there's this sentiment right now that's like, I don't like either choice, so I'm just going to steer clear from the whole thing. And the reality is, there's more on the ticket than just the presidency. Isn't that true? There's things in our state and locally that need us to respond. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just saying you need to vote. This is a responsibility that has been given to us. And as a result, we should take advantage of that privilege because you're going to be affected by it. And I know you're not like this, but the person next to you, whether they vote or not, is probably going to complain about it. And if that's the way it's going to be, then to do nothing is a choice to vote for something. And there's no perfect candidates, there's no perfect options, but not to vote means that you've already chosen to support whichever candidate wins. And that might not be the wisest thing for you to do. And so just, I'm just encouraging you, I know not everybody feels this way, but from my soapbox, I asked you to go out on Tuesday. So can I get off my soapbox now? Let me give to you two two quick questions that I think you should consider. One is this, what am I choosing for today? Now, in every area of your life, we need to ask the question, what am I choosing for today? How does this impact my life today? And I think, whether it's in relationships or even with this election, sometimes we focus too much on the question of who, and maybe we need to focus on the question of what. Sometimes that's better than than the who, because we can get wrapped up in charisma and personality sometimes. I watch people do this when they make decisions with regards to relationships they get in, the friendships they're in, business partnerships, that we make decisions based on a who, and we don't take time to really think about the what we're signing on for. Does that make sense? So much of this election has been merely based on the who, and we've gotta remember that every who comes with a what what people believe, what they stand for, what choices will be made. And at some point, we just have to ask, what does that mean for me? We've talked about this. You have to do your homework, pray about it, and make a decision where you vote your conscience. Maybe not always based on the who, but based on the what. This is critical for us to think about because the what matters. Psalm 119.30 says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. When we make choices in our lives based on God's word, we do it with a confidence. He says, do not let me be put to shame. I know that if I choose based on your word, then I've made a right choice. So when I make a choice in life, I need to ask, what's my motivation? And is my motivation the same as God's motivation? First question, what, 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 what am I choosing for today? And here's the second question, what am I choosing for my future? How does this choice that I'm making today affect my future? This has been in Peter's letter over and over again. Remember we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we said when we fail to look ahead, we usually fall behind? At some point we have to consider what are the ramifications of this choice? What is this choice gonna cost me? Does this choice reflect that my spiritual home is in heaven? Psalm 119 verse 173 
says, may your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Good choices lead to God's blessings in the future. And so we have to ask, not just what does this choice mean for today, but what does this choice mean for the future? And I think it would be good for us, no matter what choices we feel may may be in our hearts to make, I think it would be good for us if we would stop and pray for our nation and for the election. So could we do that right now? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord, we do begin by affirming that it's in you that we place our trust. God, we thank you that we have the freedom in this nation to vote. We have the freedom in this nation to gather together and to worship. And Lord, we thank you that we can not only know that, but we can act on that. And so Lord, we pray for the election this Tuesday. Lord, we ask that you would not allow confusion, that you would not allow deception, God, that you would not allow fear to put us in a place that is, uh, that is not where we wanna be. We ask that you would bring your protection and that you would bring your help in this time. Lord, we pray that you would um, allow us as a nation to look to you. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would um, allow your spirit, your presence to be with our next president. Lord, you know what we don't know, but we know that we can put our trust in you. And so we pray for our president today and we pray for our president in the future. God, that you would stir in their hearts. God, that you would bring an awakening, that you would allow them to have a desire deep down inside to know you, to experience your grace, that you would surround them with people, Lord, who would bring your wisdom and your insight and a godly influence to that office. We pray for for the different things that we'll vote on on a federal and a state and a local level. God, we, we, we lift up to you, as scripture says, those that lead us in governmental areas. Lord, we ask that you would allow us as a nation to look to you with repentance and with hope and with trust in the days ahead. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In uncertain times, Christians center their lives on Christ. Christians are in a place where they make wise choices. Here's a third thing I want you to see today. Number three, Christians realize that actions speak louder than words. Christians realize that actions speak louder than words. Now, I wanna run through this part fairly quickly for the sake of time, but here's my hope, that by giving you just a a few different thoughts based on what Peter says to us here, it will help you. See, I, I I run with this conviction that for many of us, the end of this sermon kind of launches the beginning of your week. And I want to give you some ammunition that you can use when you come up against that irritating person at work tomorrow, amen? Or that weird kid in school. Or when you deal with that family member who doesn't understand that your devotion to Jesus Christ makes a difference. See, your everyday life makes an eternal difference. And you see this. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that. He says, it's called for you to live good lives that your actions speak louder than words. And see, for many of us, we just wanna go out and we wanna preach with our mouths. We just wanna tell people about the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. But if our lives don't back it up, it doesn't mean a thing, does it? See, people need to see your example as much as they need to hear your sermon. People need to see your example as much as they need to hear your sermon. I had to go to the, 
I had to go to the auto parts store the other day, and so I walked in and needed to talk to a guy behind the counter to get a part, and so I was standing there just kind of waiting, and the guy was in front of me, and so you're waiting for the people to clear up, you know, I'm just kind of waiting, and this guy walks from the back, and he comes up to the counter, and he makes eye contact with me, and uh, I'm thinking, oh, maybe he's, you know, you're at that moment, you're like, am I next, am I next, am I next, you know, you're just kind of standing there, and you're waiting, and he makes eye contact with me, and I'm just kind of watching, and here's what he does, literally, he goes, hmm, that's it, just kind of looks at me, and goes, hmm, like that, and I'm like, me, like, I'm doing this, and he goes, hmm, I'm like, you know, and I just kind of walk up there. I don't, I don't know, maybe this is how it works in this store. I don't know. And so I stand up to the counter and the guy just looks at me like this and I'm waiting for, how can I help you? I'd even been okay with, what do you want? You know what I got? And I was like, what, what's going on here? And if I didn't know that it would take me another 15, 20 minutes, half an hour to drive somewhere else to get the part I needed, I wouldn't have bought it there. They happen to have it and I bought it. You know why I bought it? I bought it out of desperation, certainly not out of customer service. Right. Have you had that experience? Look, here's the deal. Whether I know you personally or not, if you walk into Calvary one day and any of our greeters ever go, huh, find me, tell me, I wanna know, get their name and ID number, I don't know, just, we don't do that, right? It's just, it irritates me when I get that customer service. I did not wanna buy there because of the way I was treated. Your ears won't receive what your eyes can't see. So if I'm gonna preach something, and you hear that, but you don't see it in my life, you're not gonna be able to receive it because of that disconnect. Have you, do you know the experience I'm talking about? Your ears won't receive what your eyes can't see. Parents, this is big, because if you talk faith to your kids, but your kids never see it, it's not gonna stick. The reality is, a disconnect between what is heard and what is seen is a fatal distraction from the truth. So this is why Peter says, look, you have to live such good lives in the world out there that they're gonna see that your actions speak louder than your words. How do you do it? Here's what he said. You do it with gentleness and respect. You do it with gentleness and respect. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. When people ask you about what's going on in your life, be ready, he says, to answer them with gentleness and respect. Because the way you say something makes a big difference, doesn't it? I wanna extend my sympathies to all of the Indian fans. It was a tough week, wasn't it? Game seven, wow, if you're not, even if you're not a baseball fan, what a game. And so the Cubs got an answer to over a 100-year-old prayer. And they had a parade this week that they say was, did you see this? The seventh largest gathering of humanity ever. It's pretty impressive, Chicago. Nice work, right? There's this girl who's a student at Trinity Christian College. Her name is Kayla Adams. And it's in Palos Heights, Illinois. It's just kind of right outside of Chicago. And, and Kayla wanted to go to the parade. Big Cubs fan. The problem was she had her criminal justice class at the same time as the parade. Her professor is Dr. Dennis Conley. Did you know there's a website called Rate My Professors where you can go out there and kind of rate your professors? Here's the opening rating for Dr. Conley. It says he hates when people skip his class and doesn't take it lightly. Kayla's gotta choose, Dr. Conley or the parade. She chose the parade. Here's the email she sent to Dr. Conley. Hi, professor. I won't be in class tomorrow because I'm going to the Cubs parade. Kayla. His response, you ready for this? Kayla, I think what you meant to say is as a criminal justice student, 
you are very interested in how police handle large crowds. <laughs> For this reason, you have decided to get first-hand research seeing the Chicago police work with a large crowd. I think it is very commendable that you are so dedicated to criminal justice <laughs> that you are spending your time and money to do this important research. Please be safe, Dr. Conley. <laughs> That's a great guy, isn't it? How you say something makes all the difference. That's why Peter says, you want people to see Christ in you? Then you have to do it with gentleness and respect. Be honest with me. When were you ever argued into anything? When did any real change in your life ever come because somebody was combative and argumentative with you? Mostly, I'm pushed away by that. The reality is the difference that happens when people see something in your life is not so much because of what you say, it's because of what they see. They see that gentleness and respect. You know what makes the difference? What makes the difference is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Christians rely not on the strength of argument, but the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's work in our lives. As God works through your example, you'll see this when you read chapter three. You'll see this over and over again as you go through scriptures, that it's the Spirit at work through us more than it is us that makes the difference. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape, listen to this language, this is not like mamby-pamby language, that they'll escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. People who are not followers of Christ, scripture says, are in the trap of the devil. It's pretty high stakes, isn't it? How do you win them over? Be kind to everyone. Gentleness and respect. Which brings us to Peter's point here. He wants them to see we are to influence others more than we are to be influenced by others. As followers of Jesus Christ, whether it be at school, in the workplace, with our family, in the community, we are called to be an influence to others more than we are influenced by others. And our tendency sometimes when we don't like things, in fact, this, this has been to the fault of the church in, in uh, I'd say in the last century, that there's times when we don't like things, instead of stepping out, we shrink back. And that's not what God has called us to do. Christians are called to be influence, amen? Once you get going, it just gets flowing. Christians are called to be influential, not isolated. Listen to Jesus' words. Matthew chapter five. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are called to be the light of the world. People should see Christ inside of you to the point that, listen to what Paul says, Philippians chapter two, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Just to be honest, I'm really not that crazy about that scripture. <laughs> Do everything without grumbling or arguing 
so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You are the light. You are called to shine. You are to make a difference. So when you are kind, when you show gentleness and respect, then your words have the ammunition of your actions and they have the ability to change people. Think about this analogy of light. Light is a powerful thing. Darkness doesn't drive out light. Light drives out darkness. And if there is no light, is it the fault of the darkness? No, it's the fault of the light. That the light has not shined and made a difference. If you're like me, you're just a dim bulb, but you can make a difference. Shine your light. Let your actions speak louder than your words and be ready for this. Because when you shine your light, you're gonna have to pay the bill. Number four, in uncertain times, Christians face challenges with courage. In uncertain times, Christians face challenges with courage. Go back to verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter two. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I shined them a light. I did the right thing. I obeyed God and his word. Yeah, they're gonna accuse you of doing wrong, but I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I know. They'll probably even be kind of harsh and cruel to you because of that. People won't understand. They may misunderstand you. They even may mis- mistreat you. Yeah, but I, did, I didn't do anything. Yeah, I know, but they may accuse you of that. That's a challenge that comes because sometimes people won't understand why you act with regards to your faith. Isn't that true? Why? because you're shining a light in a world where there's blinded eyes. You ever have somebody walk into the room where you're sleeping and just open the blinds, pull back the curtains, just to prove that they hate you? Have you ever had that happen? (laughs) Right, why, you're like, ah! Because light hurts blinded eyes. You don't like that bright light. If you're the light of the world, then it's gonna make a difference if you're shining that light in eyes that aren't open. An active faith may not be clearly seen by blinded eyes. The reality is, if you're living out your faith, there's a chance you'll be misunderstood. In fact, scripture says it here. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And sometimes, and look, let's make sure that every time You live your life with your actions speaking louder than words. You do it with kindness and gentleness and respect. But when you make choices that may run counter to our culture but in line with God's word, you know people won't understand that sometimes, right? In fact, the truth is a bright light is often painful to blinded eyes. People might not like that difference that's in you. To the point that in verse 16 of chapter three, Peter says, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, you didn't do anything wrong. And there may be those, in fact, he kind of makes it sound like there will be those who may speak poorly about you. Let's rewind this then. What were they saying? Go back to the first century. What was the culture saying about the Christians in that day? One, they were slandered by the, by the culture around them because once their faith was in Christ, they couldn't participate in some of the idolatrous activities of the culture. 
They didn't go to the same parties. They didn't go to the pagan festivals and the parades. They chose not to go. And because they didn't go, do you know what they were called? This is the actual term. They were called haters of humankind. They wouldn't go to these pagan events. And so the culture around them said, you are haters of humankind. They heard them say Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, and they called them traitors to their nation. They called them immoral. This is really interesting to me because in the church there was this love where they cared for each other, where they referred to each other as brother and sister. There was this community that they had and the world outside said something immoral must be happening in there. In fact, I've heard that they're cannibals in there and that they eat flesh and drink blood. These were literally the things that were being said about the Christians. They were totally misunderstood because they lived their faith out. I'm sure glad that's not gonna happen today. Nobody would ever call us old-fashioned or archaic in our thinking, would they? Nobody would ever think that if we made a choice based on scripture, we might be defying the laws of the land. Nobody would ever think that we weren't valuing someone else's human right. We live in uncertain times, don't we? And as Christians, with gentleness and respect, We've gotta be willing to face that challenge with courage. How do you do that? Number five, Christians have hope. Christians have hope. Remember what Peter says in verse 15. He says, look, I know people may speak maliciously against you, but I want you to be ready to have an answer for everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. He says, look, you have hope that they're looking for, and so be ready to share that hope. See, this is at the very heart and foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have hope in this life. We have a hope that others do not have. The world is searching for this hope and we have it. It's in salvation. We have value and we have purpose because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. See, the Christian has found the hope that humanity is looking for. The Christian has found the hope that humanity is looking for and we have to remember that and please don't forget that the people you interact with, whether they accept your faith or not, are looking for the very thing that only faith in Jesus Christ can bring. In fact, I've come to realize that the people that I wanna go, well, they, they look like they have it all together, or they don't look like they have any needs. They're often the people who need it the most. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. It is often the person you least expect who needs to find hope the most. That's why we live out our faith with gentleness and respect. Because we have hope in this life and we also have hope in times of trials. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have hope in times of trials. Look, you you can spin that two different ways. One is that when you're facing a tough time, you can place your hope in Jesus Christ. The other is this, that when you face a tough time, you have hope that somehow Jesus is gonna use that trial, that he's gonna use that challenge, that God has a plot twist in there somewhere, that even though you're in the midst of this drama, somehow he's gonna use it to bring an ending that only he could have directed. And we put our confidence 
and our hope in this. Peter says here, look, I want you to live such good lives. I want you to have an answer for hope so that when people accuse you, they'll be ashamed of their slander, that they will see the hope that is in Jesus Christ. The reality is your struggle may be the catalyst that leads to another salvation. What you're going through may actually be the very thing maybe even the very person who's putting you through that struggle. It may be this struggle that God uses to show them the hope that you have in Christ and they can have as well. And sometimes I don't wanna think that way. You know what I wanna think? I wanna think that everybody's gonna like me, that if God's with me, then everything will be good and everything will be easy and everybody will vote Chad, right? That's what I think. It's not always that way. Sometimes, you'll be misunderstood. And the Christian is called to declare the praise of God, not receive the praise of man. And that is so critical for us to remember. Now look, I, I realize that there may be someone who's in this service and you're here today, and it might be that you would say, well, I'm, I'm curious about Christianity, or maybe you just outright say, look, I'm, just, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you'd even get to the point that you'd just say, look, I'll never be a Christian. But maybe you're here because you're, you're supporting someone who's being baptized, or maybe you're watching this out of curiosity in some way or another. And you've asked the question, what makes a Christian so different? Maybe even to the point that you've known some Christians that there's been a change that's come in their life, similar to what happened to the first century Christians, that's caused them to seem like they're making decisions that you don't understand or it's created a tension in your relationship. And what I want you to know is that this tension has come not because this person who's become a follower of Christ somehow cares less about you. In fact, I would guess that somehow they care more about you now than ever. The reality is this tension comes because when we receive Christ, there's a change that comes in our life and the hope and purpose that we found in him gives us a different purpose and focus in our lives. If Jesus Christ has so profoundly impacted us, then it affects every area of our life and that peace and that purpose is something we will not trade anything else for and we put our confidence in Jesus, but sometimes that creates that tension. Look, I remember when, when I first kind of fell in love with my wife back in high school, everything changed for me. In fact, I kind of went a little goofy, right? Why, because you've got this new focus, you've got this new purpose, you've got this new passion, you've got this thing that's a priority, this person that's a priority in your life that's different than it was before, and that means that some people might not understand that. The reality is I wanted to go, hey, I want you to meet Rhonda, hey, this is Rhonda, I was excited about this, but people don't always get that. And the reality is when Jesus changes our lives, he brings this hope that we just want everyone to share as well. That's what our faith is all about. That's how a Christian lives in uncertain times. We live with this hope. Some of you are facing some uncertain times. Maybe you haven't been sleeping the last week because of the election. But most likely it's something else that's keeping you up at night. Maybe your finances, your family, your health. Maybe it's just a restlessness. Scripture tells us, this passage tells us that in Jesus, we find hope. There's only two places in this letter that Peter wrote that he uses these words. We'll look at another one here in a few weeks. But at the very beginning of verse 11 of chapter two, he starts out and he says to them, and remember, he's never met these people. 
But he says to them, dear friends. Some Bible versions translate those two words as, as beloved. That the impact that there is so powerful. Peter's not just throwing out some casual greeting. He is literally speaking from his heart to theirs because he knows their struggle and he knows their problems and he knows the places where they feel they have no hope. And he says to them, dear friends, I've got this guy in my life that I, I count as a gift from God. He, he is to me what I would call a dear friend. His name's Stan, he pastors a church in another town and at times in my life when I've just needed somebody to speak into my life, he's been there. Times when I just needed some wisdom because he's, he's got more experience than I do. He, he's spoken into my life. There's times when um, I faced some challenges. There's times when I felt like a real failure that he came alongside of me and spoke a word of encouragement. When I was going through a real struggle with an individual, he was able to help me get some clarity and have the courage to deal with it. When there were times when I just needed someone to say, quit your crying and be a man. He was able to speak that into my life. I'm thankful that God put a guy in my life who could be a dear friend. And this passage of scripture can be that for you. For some of you, I kinda wanna be that today. I just wanna encourage you that wherever you are, and maybe for us as a church, that there are moments in uncertain times when you need someone to bring you hope who will look you in the eye and speak to your heart and just say, dear friend, it's gonna be okay. I need you to understand something though, and Peter does this here. Sometimes the, the things we face in life, we have to understand, things may get worse before they get better. You ever been there? This is what this passage says. He says, look, you may be accused and you may struggle and things may get worse before they get better. But never forget, Peter says, the best is yet to come. If you'll put your trust in him, if you'll put your hope in him, if you'll make him your confidence and your strength, that's what you'll find in Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, just kind of right where you are. We've talked about a lot today. But if you're here this morning and just very simply, you just say, God, where I'm at, nationally, personally, Lord, I need to know that you are the source of my hope. I need hope today. Just right where you are, will you just raise your hand? God, I need hope today. Dear friend, don't be afraid. God, I need your hope. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I need your hope. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord, we thank you that you can be the very center of our hearts. Lord, some of us need your help to make wise choices. Some of us have been challenged today that, that our actions need to speak louder than our words. To some of us, you... You've spoken to us about the challenges that we face and that we need to do it with courage, but ultimately, God, you've called us to put our hope in you. So, Lord, we, we give you this election, and our hope is in you. And, God, we give you our challenges because our hope is in you. Lord, in every area of our lives, we put our confidence, we put our strength, we put our trust in the only one who can ever make an eternal difference. What a wonderful name, the name of Jesus. And so today we put our hope in you. As we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Lord, would you send us out with your special favor, your wonderful peace. In Jesus' name, amen.